Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 41 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I've already recorded 42 with Danny Sugar, but you got to wait for that next week. Uh, just the timing of my scheduling. But uh, I've got a I've got a guest here that I really excited. First time, long overdue, in uh, Joel Jameson. Now I met Joel in 2017 at Luca Hosvar's uh, Fitness and Business Conference, which I'm kind of hoping to get down to this year if the border opens up, which I think it will. And that was really cool. Your presentation was amazing. But the second time I saw you, I was watching a UFC. I can't remember the number of it, but you're walking out with Demetrius Johnson in his corner. Yep. So you're his longtime strength and conditioning coach. And Demetrius, for anyone who's not familiar, is one of the most legendary UFC fighters in history. The guy's a record holder, all kinds of stuff. And if I remember correctly, he's flyweight. So he's one of the little guys. He's a little guy. Yep. Little, little, little and fast. Yeah, those guys are much more entertaining to watch, I find. So and honestly, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Happy to come on. Any, any friend of Luca's is a friend of uh, friend of Luca's, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I know some of my listeners may not be, you know, super familiar with your work. Others might be. Despite you've got a pretty big following, I know you can't kind of keep a quiet profile. Um, Luca is just big and loud and, you know, there's tons of Luca. If anybody follows Luca, he goes to your gym every Sunday night and trade. Yep. And they might also see him flying around in a helicopter. That's you. You're the pilot of that thing. <laughs> that, that is definitely me. Yep. That is super cool. I see the and you've got a podcast where you take people up in the chopper, the chopper cast or something like that. Yeah, copter cast. I, I, I did one in with John Berardi uh I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. I need to get around to doing more of them. It's a little bit logistically challenging to set it all the way up, but it was definitely a fun one and we'll, we'll have to do some more. Yeah, that's the one I saw. So the, the John Berardi one, I had the good fortune yep. of having him on back a while ago on mine, and he doesn't do a lot of podcasts, but I know you guys are friends. So it was really cool to get you on. So, you know, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, you know, the MMA side of stuff, but let's actually just start with this because I want people to, who aren't already familiar with you to know that you're big on the conditioning side of strength and conditioning. And I definitely feel like in our space, there's a bias towards the strength side and conditioning. Well, it's, it's, it's easier. It's more fun to go lift weights and be big and strong. Right. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of how most of us got into the field and I'm no exception. You know, I, I was in the same category, the same boat. I played football in high school and threw shot and disc and, you know, was, was big into lifting um, really all the way through college and, and kind of how I became known as a conditioning guru is something that's still crazy to me because I, you know, didn't, it's not like I aspired to be this guy who knew conditioning it was really because I opened up my gym next to AMT Pancration, which is really the best MMA gym in the world and best MMA coach of all time, I believe, Matt Hume. And really quickly, I had these guys walking over to my, my gym saying, hey, can you train me for this K1 fight or this big UFC fight? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. And, but they, in the back of my mind, I'm like, how the hell do I do that? You know, like I really, I knew strength. I knew power. I worked with a guy, Bill Gillespie at the University of Washington, who's an 800-pound bench presser, uh, just a legendary strength guy. And certainly I had tons of experience getting guys strong, but it, it was uh, it was a big eye opener when I went over to MMA gym for the first time and I started training with these guys and they just killed me after 30 seconds. I mean, I was so much stronger and then they came over to my gym. They couldn't do more than like three or four pull-ups. You know, most of them were, were, did not have much relative strength. They couldn't bench press their body weight. Their squat looked like they were having a seizure. I mean, these guys were not strong athletes. And so I first went over to MAGM and I'm like, oh, I'm going to tear these guys up for a little while. And then I just got manhandled within 30 seconds because I was completely gassed out on the, on the mat and they were, you know, they were just getting warmed up. And so it was a big eye opener. Like, holy shit, there's this big area of fitness I know nothing about. I better learn really quickly because these guys are going to expect me to train them to compete at a high level. And so I just had to dig in. I mean, you just kind of have to figure out what you, when you see what you don't know, you have to figure out how to fill that gap. And so I just dug into conditioning and every level if I could and spend the next, you know, 20 years, I guess, since that point, continuing to do that because it was such an important area. The more I learned about it, the more I realized how important it really is, not just for, you know, a combat fighter, but for anybody really. I don't care what your goal is. You have to have some some conditioning if you're going to live a long, healthy life. Uh, this brings up two thoughts. And I'll start with the first one in that there's a lot of people pr pretty well known in our industry, our friend Pete Dupuy for a, a good example, and, and, and Eric Cressy, uh, the gym that they call these guys are legends for their baseball pitching work, right? Major league, minor league players, you name it. But, you know, their story, they didn't necessarily set out to go and capture that market. It was something that kind of fell to them initially. 
And if yep. you remember um, Sam Pogue, who presented at uh, Luca's event in 2017, Sam has trained Jake Arietta for years. That was just a casual encounter that turned into him working with um, Major League Baseball Cy Young Award winner, like best pitcher in the league. So there's a lot of these stories where people didn't so much seek out these places in the industry and the population they're working with, but almost fell into them. And the second point yep. was the reason why I brought you on, uh, you know, rushed bringing you on was because I had just gotten and read through your book, uh, Ultimate MMA Conditioning, right? Um, 2009 book, you know, it's a little older, like we talked about, but honestly, I think it's the best resource that I found on understanding the science of energy systems and practical application of training. But you make the point in the book repeatedly that one of the biggest issues a lot of these fighters are having, and I think this translates to more than just MMA, is the guys are gassing out. Like you said earlier, they've got the strength, they've got various other performance power, but they can't continue to apply it over the course of the fight. So I'll just open the floor to you there on some of the, you know, the fundamentals of why these things are lacking, why the coaching community doesn't pay enough attention to it, what's important, you know, just take it away. Yeah, I mean, the, there's obviously a lot to talk about there. I'd say the the funniest story about that book, I'd just give your listeners some background, is I'd start my website eight weeks out um, to just kind of help get some of the information out there of, of what I was seeing in the world of combat athletes. And at that point in time, combat sports were exploding. This is when like the Ultimate Fire series went first big and you had Chuck Liddell fighting all these big fighters. I mean, like UFC was a big deal. And so there was all kinds of new coaches getting in the game of trying to help people train for fights. But the reality is they had very little experience and, and knowledge. And the problem was you were seeing a lot of guys who would like train college football players and they were trying to put the same program on an MMA fighter. Well, the problem with that is a college football player, you know, is really only in season for a few months out of the year. And a fighter is never really off season. A fighter is training five, six days a week for the entire year. And so there was just all this kind of bad information out there, honestly. And so started the website. I, I got some initial viewers and people reading and paying attention. And I thought, well, I should write a book, but you know, I'd never really written a book before. So I basically said, well, I don't want to write an entire book if no one's going to buy this damn thing. Like, that's, you know, I'm, I'm training people full time and I don't want to waste my time. So I said, okay, I'm going to write the first half of the book and then I'm going to make it for sale, uh, pre-sale and I'll let people pre-order it. And then I'm like, if I get enough pre-orders, then I'll finish the book. If I don't, I'll just refund their money. So it was kind of like a little experiment for me. And so I wrote the first half of the book. Uh, I put it out there in the first three days. I had maybe 500 people, which, you know, back then was a good number of people. It's still not a bad number of people. Right. So I'm like, okay, now I got to finish this thing. Well, what I didn't realize is like, it's the second half of the book was about three times longer to write than the first half of the book. So all the editing and all the layout, like all the stuff that goes into finalizing the book took far longer than I thought. So I was getting emails towards the end of like, basically people thinking I'd ripped them off and I'd scammed them for their money. And like, you know, wouldn't this thing ever going to come out? Right. So finally, you know, it got out there and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, finishing off the thing as fast as I can. And I'm nervous. I'm like, are people going to like it? Is this going to make any sense to people? You know, cause there really weren't that many books and there still aren't, I would say on energy systems and kind of the topics I covered. So you never really know. I mean, are people going to love this? Are people going to hate it? Is it going to make sense? Um, but sure enough, the reviews were all really positive and, and it's been picked up. I mean, it's, it is 12 years later. And I still get people reading it for the first time. And I would say also it's been used by a huge number of sports that uh, you wouldn't expect from a book called ultimate MMA conditioning. You know, we've had rugby and ultimate Frisbee and rowing and, you know, every kind of sport you can almost think of at this point, I've had somebody either a coach or an athlete reach out and say, Hey, I do this sport and I used all the stuff in your book. So it just speaks to a, I think there's, there's just a lack of general information about how to take energy systems and apply the principles uh, practically, because you kind of see energy systems being lumped into science books at this point. Like you see, you read energy systems in the physiology textbooks in college or wherever, but there's no connection between that. And how do I translate that information into a program in the real world, in the gym? And that's what I tried to do with ultimate conditioning was stay true to the principles of how the body works, but then give people some real tools and strategies and principles to say, okay, well, here's my, my energy system development and here's what you need to improve. Here are the methods. Here are the methods I can go use to do that, and then here's the framework I can build a program from to you know to see good results. So, you know, I think that's probably the biggest reason that we see people lacking in conditioning, and is there's just not that much good information out there. And I think that's also very easy to buy into what I call the high intensity mindset. This is kind of my name for it. It's, it's this idea that you know we we like to think like conditioning is just this uh, train as hard as you can and and high intensity all the time, and your conditioning will be better. 
Well, that's true to a, to a point, but that's like the same thing as saying, well, just max out every day in the gym when you're lifting and you'll get stronger. Like, is that a good approach to lifting weights? Like nobody does that. Nobody goes and does a one or three rep max every single day in the squat deadlift bench or clean or whatever. It calls that a train program, but that's how a lot of people approach conditioning, right? It's like, oh, just go in and get your heart rate really high every day and, you know, make yourself really tired and your conditioning will get better. But that's a very short-sighted approach. The same thing, you know, same way it would be if you applied that strategy to, to lifting. But again, there's there's just not been enough really good quality information out there, and, and part of it is just because, uh, you know, we we're biased towards strength from a from a professional you know fitness community. I would say, you know, if I wasn't exposed to the fighters early on, I'd probably still be doing the same stuff I was doing when I was, uh, you know, in my twenties. You know, maybe not, but I would have not had the same exposure to the need for conditioning. I should say so. Uh, that's one part of it is just the fitness professionals driving this field aren't as exposed to it. They're not as knowledgeable about it. So you're not, if you're not as knowledgeable or confident about it, you're not going to write about it. You're not going to speak about it. It's just not as covered, I would say, as strength. Uh, and then the other side is it is more complicated. I hate to say this, but there are more moving parts to conditioning than there are to strength. Strength is, um, I wouldn't say easy, but there are fewer complexities to developing a good strength program than developing a progressive conditioning program for a variety of sports. So there's just a lot of facets to it that you have to educate yourself about and you have to, uh, you know, learn how to put together to build an effective program. So, um, that's, you know, quick overview of conditioning for you. There's, well, you detail the three major systems, anaerobic, alactic, anaerobic, lactic, and then obviously your, uh, aerobic systems. And the book goes into great detail, even in places where if you're trying to develop a specific part of conditioning, if you're trying to train that concurrently with another specific part, then they actually don't necessarily work together or they can interfere with the training of they each can, other. Yeah. And something I took from it, certainly, I mean, I don't work with any uh, high-level MMA fighters, professional MMA fighters, but I would imagine this book would be a how-to guide. If you've got a fighter who's got two fights in a row, but one fight is going to be against a guy who's a really strong grappler versus another guy who's going to be a stand-up striker, you're going to probably train the energy systems quite differently for someone who's going to be mostly, you know, dance around a bit of uh, explosive striking versus a guy who's got to sustain grappling for an entire match. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really what I told when the principles I talk about the book is just this idea of specificity, right? Which what I mean by that is, again, there's a difference in strength. So if I can squat, let's say a thousand pounds, chances are I can deadlift a shit ton of weight too. Maybe I won't be a world-class deadlifter, but I'll probably be a pretty damn strong deadlifter. It doesn't always translate quite the same, the conditioning side. If I do a whole bunch of strand up and I'm a striker and I get my really, my conditioning great standing up, I might go to the ground and gas out. I might not have any nearly the same level of conditioning on the ground because it's a very different thing. And that's hard for people to wrap their head around, but there is a very specific component to that. So like you could take, you know, let's say Lance Armstrong and you could put him in a swimming pool. I'm sure he'd have decent endurance in a swimming pool, but he wouldn't be Lance Armstrong in a swimming pool. It's a totally different movement. It's a totally different, uh, you know, movement pattern in general. So Again, it, it just comes down to we have to understand the specific. So this, this old principle said, right, specific adaptation to impose demands. And what that basically means is, and this is kind of how I def define conditioning person. I, I would say we can look at these broad markers like VO2 max or lactate threshold or, or heart rate variability. All these things we would say are markers of fitness. I would say, well, that's, that's the building block of conditioning because conditioning block is your ability to turn those things into uh you know a sporting execution or a skill or performance it's it, to me conditioning is the application of fitness to accomplish you know something and that that specificity is getting where a lot of people will lack and they'll go in the gym they'll do some really high intensity program that has nothing to do with their sport and they'll wonder why they still gas out in their sport well it's because you just trained completely different energy systems and completely different movement patterns than your sport requires so of course it didn't translate particularly well so again, that kind of comes back to, we have to understand what do we train people to do? And if we're training people to fight a wrestler versus a striker, those are different things. If you train somebody to, uh, you know, live a longer, healthier life, that's different than training an athlete. There are different demands there. There are different considerations. So we just have to understand what are we trying to really train people to do and then understand what do we need to do to help their systems and their movement and everything else come together to help them do that more effectively. I've, I, this book has definitely shifted some of my attitudes, you know, in, in more in favor of just doing cardio, even for myself, I bought an assault bike just because I'm like, I'm reading this. I'm like, I need an assault bike for my basement. I'll do that. Um, what would you say to someone in the strength world who believes that just training their athletes for strength is enough 
and that they're going to get their conditioning, their energy system work from playing their sport? Well, there's an easy answer to that. Have you ever seen an athlete gas out? Uh, probably. Well, do you think the athlete was training their sport? Probably. Was it enough for them? Clearly not. I mean, the simplest example, like this, look at combat sports. Those guys train their sport as much as anybody else, and they still go in and gas out all the time. So clearly, if, if playing the sport or doing the sport was enough, I could take the same argument and say, well, why do strength training? They're, they're overloading their sport-specific skills in the skill. So why do we lift weights? What? It's the same argument. We use conditioning separate from the sport for the same reason we do strength training separate from the sport, right? A sprinter gets overloaded from sprinting. A jumper gets overloaded from jumping, but we still lift weights, right? So we do that because there are weak links in the chain that we can overload specifically through less specific means and methods. We, we try to find areas of their skill that can be limited by their ability to perform certain movements explosively or correctively, correct biomechanically or energetically. And that's why we do less specific form to training. So there's a spectrum, right? Like walking down the street is the opposite of the spectrum of sprinting hundred, you know, not hundred meters, but any distance really. They're, they're different events that have a common movement pattern or at least commonalities, I should say. But we don't say, uh, you know, someone sprints hundred meters. So let's not do anything with sprint hundred meters. They do different forms of track A, B, skip drills. They work on different arm mechanic drills. They work on their starts, right? Like we take everything, we break down into the different components and we improve those components to make the end result better. And it's the same thing with conditioning versus strength versus anything else. The whole reason we use these different modalities and different means is because we can overload certain components and we can make them better. And their sports always not the best place to, to do that, except for uh, in the specific mode itself. So we, we, you could take their argument and turn it into any, any argument against doing anything other than just playing the sport. But clearly we know that's not a great recipe for success, even from a, just a repetitive injury protection standpoint. Yeah. You might get better sport, but you're also going to blow your knees out in six months. If all you're doing is playing your sport for, you know, three hours a day. And that ties into managing stress and recovery. I know you talk a lot about that stuff goes into heart rate variability, which I'll, I can sort of dance around too, but I guess within this and in the specifics of MMA, but I, I'm sure it applies to other sports. I'm trying to think about how I want to phrase this. Often the fighters are doing too much, right? So can you comment on managing the amount of stress and recovery in developing your energy systems, plus their fighting and their tactical training, uh, plus their strength training? Yeah. I mean, look, that's, I think that's, it's a big problem in combat sports is because there is no off season. That's a very high skill sport. So they play their, they practice their sport, you know, five, six days a week. And so we always have to understand that again, you can't look at strength training or conditioning and skill work as these like completely separate entities because they're all just different forms of stress and every stress has a cost. And that's kind of the, the big thing people understand is everything that you do has a cost to it. And that cost is basically energy because it takes metabolic energy to turn uh, to do movement basically and to react to stress. So if we're spending four, five, six days a week, you know, one, two, three hours a day doing our skill, we have to understand that we're expending a tremendous amount of energy just playing our sport or practicing. So we have to take that into consideration when they will, then we go build a strength conditioning program on top of that. And we have to start with what, what days of the week we train skill, how hard are those days, how many hours are we spending? And then I work around that and I build a conditioning program or strength program that supports that. I don't just say like, oh, what does this athlete need from a strength conditioning standpoint? Let me just build a four or five day week program and completely forget about the six days a week that they're in the MMA gym. We just, you can't do that because you're just layering stress on top of stress. And ultimately, you know, the whole point of, of training is to progressively cause the body to get better. And that only happens through this process of training and recovery. I mean, you basically stress the body, you allow it to recover, and then you repeat that process. Without the recovery component, you're just layering on stress after stress after stress. And then what you get is injury. I mean, that's really the end result of too much stress and too little recovery is you get injury and detraining and they're not detraining, but overtraining, lack of performance, everything else. The only way you see continual improvements is to train, recover, and repeat that cycle over and over again. So I would say that's probably the biggest mistake I see in combat sports is they, they just have a very um, a disassociation, I should say. Like they look at the sport separately from the strength conditioning, but you can't do that. So that's one of the biggest things I would say we did with you know, Demetrius and all the guys that Matt Hume and myself trained for so many years is, you know, we had gyms next door to each other. We knew exactly what the fighter was doing in fight training. Cause I was over there a lot of times watching them. He was in the gym with me doing the strength conditioning session. So we know he knew what those were like. It was, a, it was one cohesive program. It wasn't like two disjointed 
things layered on top of each other. So I would say, you know, as, as much as the strength coaches want to play a huge role in the athlete sport, you have to start by looking at what the athletes are doing in their sport and then be a supportive role of that, you know, not an independent role of that. And I think that's probably the, the best advice I can tell a strength coach out there is understand very clearly if you're working the fighter, how many days a week are they in the gym? How many hours are they training per day? How hard are they training during the sessions? What movements are they doing? You know, the more information you can start with, the better you can figure out where are the gaps, where are the opportunities, and what do I, you know, what do I build around them to support them rather than just, you know, layer in more training on top of training. Relationships with the other coach. That was something I was going to ask, but you already answered yep. it. You clearly had a really good one in with Demetrius Johnson and some of these other athletes. Um, Obviously, I think that's a super important thing, and it doesn't end up becoming a tug of war of egos between two people involved with the same athlete. Yeah, absolutely. You have to have a good relationship with the, the skill coach if you're going to build a you know long term uh, successes for the athletes you're working with. Particularly if you're working with one sport or one uh, group of sports, the better you can have that relationship, and the more you're all on the same page, it serves the athlete more than anything else. And uh, you know, again, I kind of hate to say this, but strength coaches tend to think that their program is most important and the reality is it's, it's the skill coach at the end of the day, who's going to be the one getting credit and receiving, receiving blame. If the team goes out and fails, no one's pointing the team strength coach and say, Oh, we lost that game because of that guy. Uh, so you just have to understand the head coach has got a big ego a lot of times, but they're the ones also whose name is on their team. Like they're the ones who are going to get hired and fired and their careers, you know, are, are re relying on them winning. So you just got to kind of work, learn to work with them and defer to them in a lot of cases, because, you know, if you want to be successful in this field, telling the, head coach he's training wrong as an idiot it's probably not a good way to stay as stay an assistant coach of that team for very long so you just got to kind of understand how to work with the the system that the athletes are in and and again play that supportive role wherever you can and and not try to think that uh you know you're going to overrule the head coach or you're going to uh, train them in a way that you want to train them without considering everything else that's happening i guess with the mma world a lot of these relationships are informal a lot of strength and conditioning people end up uh, I recently had uh, Tim DeFrancesco on and he owns a facility down in Salem Massachusetts but he was the head strength and conditioning coach for the LA Lakers for several seasons so in a lot of cases those strength coaches are there in a formal relationship within the same organization and they're probably subordinate in some way to the, the oh yeah always sure or at least the the team president or what have you and yep. I think they're also sometimes the first people that the sword falls on but in the MMA world, you don't usually get those kind of relationships, I suppose. The, the MMA world yeah, feels like the Wild West. Yeah, it is. I mean, there, don't get me wrong. There are a few gyms out there like, you know, AMC when, when I was there for many years with Matt. And there's a few of the bigger ones out there, you know, coming down in Vegas. And the UFC Performance Institute is probably the best example. I mean, they have, they have Duncan French and they have Forrest overseeing that. And they have their assistant coaches that run things. They have a very good hierarchy of how that whole thing is put together from the you know the ground up but that's only available to the ufc athletes and that's a fairly small set of athletes in the grand scheme of the thing so the biggest problem you know aside from just getting the, the lack of communication because there aren't these formal relationships is a lot of times athletes will go two to three different gyms because maybe this gym over here has really good striking and that gym has really good grappling so now you're you're screwing your communication even more because you're going to two gyms for skill work and then a different gym for strength conditioning and that none of those none of those none of those coaches talk a lot of times. And again, each each coach wants to feel like they're doing the best job they can, and they're giving them a tough workout, and they're working. But it's just again, it's just kind of this disjointed hard work. And that's all it becomes a lot of times. It's disjointed working really hard all the time. Uh, but there's, if there's no cohesiveness, there's no communication, there's no uniformity or overall um, you know organization, you run yourself into your problems. So that's one of the things I try to do with. You know, a lot of times I'll get fires coming to me either either in person or lots of times, you know, answering, asking questions online. And first thing I'll do is say, write out your schedule on a weekly basis. And you look at it, you're like, dude, no wonder you don't feel so great or no wonder you're suffering. And, you know, you can just see these crazy schedules of like, oh, the morning I go here and then the afternoon I go here. And then you know, maybe twice a week at nighttime, I go to this gym and, you know, they're just spending an insane amount of time traveling between two or three different or sometimes even four different gyms with four five six different coaches doing you know who knows how many different variations of things on a weekly basis and it just crushes them over time and i guess a lot of these athletes and the coaches come from this mentality that you have to work harder this blood and guts and brutal hardcore imagery and don't have a fundamentally good understanding of fatigue management recovery management you yep. 
talk a lot about heart rate variability. So that was your presentation when I saw you in 2017. And I suppose I always try to avoid these general pedantic questions that, you know, you guys get on every podcast you do. And I know this is your bread and butter, but is there anything for, you know, now I'll extend this a little further. A lot of the, the coaches listening is I tend to have a coach heavy group. They're not necessarily working with MMA fighters. I don't know if many are. So this is going to have broader applicability to athletes, but a sort of at that crash course in why, what heart rate variability is, why it's valuable and why this broader conversation or how it can still have value to the coach who mostly works with general population. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I was introduced to heart rate variability back 20 years ago. And, you know, my first probably five years was just trying to understand the answer to this question you just asked, right? What is it? How am I using it? Why is it valuable? And then how to explain it. And it, it, you know, it took me quite a bit of trial and error and experimentation to get to the, to the answers that myself, but to understand heart rate variability, you just have to understand the basics of how the body functions and how it goes about it. Uh, you have a, you go about your day and it keeps you alive walking around to do it the next day. And that basically happens through the autonomic nervous system responding to stress. And what I mean by stress is really anything where the body has to produce more energy than it does at rest at some level of stress. So the highest level of stress, of course, is a physical stress at, uh, you know, max intensity. That's a huge amount of energy it takes to produce a one rep max of a squat or deadlift or sprint hundred meters or whatever. Those are very high stress events. We, we inherently understand that, right? So anything that produces that stress response is going to be a stressor, right? It doesn't always have to, you know, it doesn't always only take the form of these super high level stressors. Just walking around is more stressful than sitting down, which is more stressful than laying down. So there's this big spectrum of what the body is exposed to on a daily basis, different levels of stress, even different types of stress. So if I'm sitting here thinking about something very mentally stressful, my heart rate goes up. That's an indication that my body is responding to that mental thought that it finds stressful. So this is just a long-winded version of saying our body is exposed to lots of different types of stress every day and our body produces energy to meet that stress. And then what happens is after that stress is passed, we have to basically put the tissues back into place or restore the body to, body's, to homeostasis to where it was. And then we have to repair any damage that was done. So if I do an intense workout, I need a lot of energy for that workout. And then I need energy to repair all the muscle that was strained and tissues that were trained, you know, during that session. And there's a cost to that as well. So all this is getting back to the idea that as our body goes throughout its daily life, it's exposed to stress. And then it's exposed to periods of gets periods of recovery where it adapts to that stress. And it's in that adaptation phase where our body gets stronger, faster, more efficient, all those positive things happen as our body recovers from that stress. And so again, training is nothing more than put the body under load give it a chance to recover from that load and repeat that process over time. And so the reason I explain this is heart rate variability is essentially measuring that process. It's measuring when the body is under stress and it's measuring when the body is going through this period of recovery. So it's measuring where you are and what I'd call the stress recovery curve. So if I'm under stress right now, I'm going to see a very specific change in my heart rate variability, which is just a measurement of how the body is regulating its heart rate. So when I see the, a heart rate variability go down or decrease from kind of my normal levels, I would see the body is under stress the same way I'd see my heart rate go up. They, they're the inverse of each other. When my body is recovering, I would see my heart rate variability go back up. And then when I would come kind of back to baseline, I would see it stabilize at kind of a normal HRV number because it's, it's measuring that stress recovery system, the parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah, your question. So I want to make this point really clear because you said it, but it might seem counterintuitive to someone that you would see more variability for more stress and less variability, more baseline, more regular for lower stress. But that's actually the opposite. More variability is an indication of being under less stress. Do you want to explain that? Yeah. Yeah. So again, what, what the actual number game heart variability is doing is measuring the parasympathetic nervous system. So people are familiar with the stress system, the stress response, they call it the fight or flight. Everyone's heard of that. Well, the counterbalance to that is the rest and digest or rest and recovery system called the parasympathetic nervous system. And like its counterpart, it's moving energy. So the stress response system is moving energy to mobilize energy to deal with what's in front of it, to deal with a period of stress. And in that case, we see a very regular heart rate pattern because the parasympathetic system goes away or decreases its, its influence. But when that stressor is over and that parasympathetic rest and digest systems uh, back turned on, that creates a more irregular heart rate pattern. And it tells us that the body is now under a period of recovery 
uh, or restoration after that, that immediate need for energy has passed. And so the heart rate variability number will go down when you're under a period of stress because the parasympathetic nervous system is less active. And then the heart rate variability will go up during a period of recovery because that parasympathetic nervous system is more active. That parasympathetic nervous system creates the variability that we're measuring in heart rate variability. So higher heart rate variability means higher parasympathetic nervous system means the body is in more of a recovery based state. But here's the mistake people make sometimes is they think immediately, oh, okay, well, higher HRV is, is always good, right? And lower HRV is always bad. It's not necessarily that simple. It's just where are you in that process of stress and recovery? So, you know, if I have a curve, it goes down, it comes shooting back up. My HRV is be really high, but I'm not fully recovered. I'm just in this part of the process that come back down to more normal. So whether your HRV is really low or really high, it's just telling you your different points in that curve and your HRV kind of comes back to your normal resting level, that's when you're fully recovered, quote unquote, and you're kind of back to your normal baseline state. But the other thing to consider is people often will say, okay, well, you know, recovery is high. Therefore I can, I'm going to go perform my best or recovery is low. And therefore I'm going to perform terribly. It's, I wish it were that simple. You know, I wish performance was that predictable, but that's not how it works. Your body can perform because uh, it's adaptive just because I've expose my body to stress in the last 24 hours doesn't mean I can't go out and perform well or, you know, or, or that I'm guaranteed to go hit a PR just because my recovery is high. Recovery is more of a gauge of where you are on that stress recovery curve, but it's not a gauge of what I'm capable of at any point in time. So my recovery might be low and I'm capable of performing a hard, heavy workout and performing well, but it's just going to take me longer to get back to normal after that workout because I'm starting from a lower place to start with. So it's, it's a gauge of where am I at in that stress recovery process? And that's going to tell me information about how much this upcoming stressor is going to cost me. If I'm starting again from a period of low recovery, then this workout is going to have a greater cost to me than I'm starting from a higher point of uh, recovery from to begin with. So it's, it's a better indicator of how much this workout is going to stress me than it is a gauge of how well can I perform or lift or whatever in this workout performance. It's not telling you you know, Hey, my recovery is low. So if I go out in the soccer field, I'm going to blow my you know, hamstring out and I'm going to perform terribly. It's just telling me that this soccer game is going to have a much bigger impact on me than if I was starting out at a higher level of recovery. Cause I already had reserves to start with that I can then use for the game versus I'm already starting lower. I've got less reserves in the tank. It's going to take me longer to get back to normal after this game. So it's more of a, it's more of a gauge of, you know, how much is this next stress going to cost me? And that's based on where I am in that curve versus, like I said, this idea that high recovery equals high performance, low injury risk, and low recovery equals bad performance, high injury risk. It's just the body's not that binary. There's so many things going on. Uh, and you have to look at a lot more information than just one score on, on one day to, to determine that. That's an ex exceptional answer. Um, I suppose what I originally asked, uh, I'll let you run through it a little bit. So how can some of the general population coaches who work with everyday people maybe use these concepts how is it applicable sure. and i can even you know throw it in there you know pump your certification because you have your cert your conditioning certification i'm going to circle back around to something else about that but maybe a little bit about that because anytime i bring a guest on i do want to endorse this stuff highlight the stuff that they're doing and they the resources they have yeah so first of all like i said the the, the idea of like stress and recovery doesn't apply just to somebody who's trying to perform in a fight or whatever that's just how the human body works. And the average person who works 40, 50, 60 hours a week and has to deal with life and finances and family and kids, they're under a tremendous amount of stress. It's, it's people often underestimate the amount of stress they're under throughout their life because they're just used to it. It's just life, right? But that level of stress has a significant impact on your fitness and has a significant impact on your health. So heart rate variability really helps you see, you know, how all these different things outside of the training session are impacting your life. And it's a very good gauge of whether or not your aerobic system and your overall resilience is increasing. So the average, mm -hmm. so we can look at HRV on a daily basis and we get these, these swings up and down, right? Those tell us where we're at in that stress recovery curve. But if you look at the long-term trends of our HRV and kind of our average numbers, we get a very good gauge of stress tolerance and resilience and our overall aerobic fitness. So somebody with a higher level of average HRV is going to be somebody who's more stress resilient, someone who's going to recover faster, someone who's going to be less likely to get cardiovascular disease and diabetes, someone who's more metabolically efficient. All of these things we can see by looking at someone's average HRV over time. So if you're working with your, you know, your kind of average gen pop client who just says, Hey, I don't, I don't need to perform. I just want to, you know, live long, healthy life and play with my kids and stay healthy for the rest of my life. 
well, higher HRV is a very good likely or indicator that that is more likely than if they, someone has a much lower HRV. It's very well correlated to VO2 max, to life expectancy, um, and disease risk. And so it's really, really valuable for two reasons. Number one, you can help your average person understand the importance of getting more sleep. You can help them understand the importance of managing their mental stress and pay attention to those things because they can see those numbers changing on you know a daily basis by looking at these numbers. And then two, you give them a very, and yourself as a coach, a very good indicator of whether or not the program is helping them move that direction towards resilience and towards uh, the ability to cope with stress and be, deal with life more effectively. So it gives you both sides of the equation. It gives you a, a tool to manage training and recovery, and it gives you a tool to gauge progress and fitness levels increasing over time. So there's a huge benefit to, to using that with, you know, really, I don't care who you're training. Uh, everyone's exposed to stress and everybody has to eat, sleep, move, recover, regenerate, all these sorts of things. So having a gauge of that is a hugely valuable tool. I'm hoping by now, anybody who's listening is kind of going, all right, I got to follow Joel. I got to see more of what you're doing and, uh, and learn about that because honestly, I, I'm picking up on stuff and this is selling me on the idea of exploring my own HRV, maybe not even for like clients necessarily, but, you know, explore it for myself before I would uh, dive even further. And obviously I think a lot of coaches will do this where if they see something really applies to them and they're getting something good out of it and they know how it works, well, shit, and I can turn around and apply it to my clientele. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, I would say a huge number. I mean, I have our own HRV system, Morpheus, where we measure HRV and we also pull in sleep and activity. You know, a majority of users are our coaches and I even have a conditioning program I just released here. Majority of people who have the conditioning program are coaches, right? They, they want to see how I apply everything. They want to see how to use HRV with themselves. And then they go apply their clients. And honestly, that's the way it should be. So when I first started training combat athletes, you know, I went over and got my ass handed to me in 30 seconds. I realized I need to train the sport a little bit more so I, so I don't get killed. And so I understand the demands really clearly. And so I spent, you know, a couple of years training with MMA fighters and doing all the workouts with them, not just, not just the strength conditioning workouts, but the skill workouts with them. So I, you know, I kind of threw myself into the fire to, to understand that side of things. And not that everyone has to go out and do the sport of their athletes, but just, you know, trying out these sorts of things, understanding how they work is going to make you much better at explaining them because you're seeing it on your own body and in your own training. And that's, you know, really one of the things that sold me on HRV myself was, was doing that was learning how conditioning workouts impacted it. And I saw firsthand how much sleep impacted it. You kind of see all these variables and you're like, wait a minute, maybe my training's not the limiting factor. Maybe it's all these other things outside the training that are slowing my progress down. It's not just this magic combination of sets and reps. It's actually this magic combination of stress and recovery over and over again, that the real results come from. Now that I think about it, we are seeing more prominent coaches getting involved, at least recreationally with, uh, with mixed martial arts. Say Mike Isratel uh, is a Brazilian jujitsu practitioner. And the idea of five foot six and 250 pounds of Mike Isratel rumbling around, that sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, Melissa Davis, who's part of the RP team, she is world-class um, and mixed martial arts athlete. Jordan Syed is a big practitioner of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And yep. uh, I, I think some of the other members of the RP team are big into this stuff. And uh, obviously, Lord knows Martin Rooney's been part of that world for a really long time too. So I shouldn't take for granted that there may be a whole bunch of coaches in here who are really interested in this. So I hope they dive in as, a bit as well. Uh, one of the other questions is I like career-based stuff as well. It doesn't play super well in the grand space, but you, know, you, you wrote the book in... 2009. And it's the only book that I know of that you've written unless something else is buried away that I wasn't aware of. And you have your certification. So is there, would you ever write another book? And is there a relationship between doubling down on, you know, marketing a certification and bringing people into something that functions the way that building and teaching a certification um, what that offers to you in your career versus the value that a book would, is there any consideration there at all? Or I'll just kind of let you explain some thoughts. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, definitely the, I, I've thought for years about just kind of updating ultimate conditioning, not that the information there's wrong or bad, but there's just some additional things that I consider now that aren't in the book. And that's really why I built the certification, which because I wanted to work with trainers and coaches, you know, in a broader context, update more information. As you know, I've, you know, I added other coaches in there, Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman and Chris Duffin's got some stuff in there, you know, uh, Brian Kane, the mental side, Dr. Rochelle and Mike, the nutrition. So I wanted to add a lot of different areas into the course and I'm continuing to evolve that over time. But it's funny you say that because I was literally on the phone today um, talking to a company about helping me turn in, turn a new course. So I, I put a new course, not that long called Recover to Win. So if you go, if you really want to dig into HRV and recovery, that is the course. It's on my website right now. 
Um, but it's, it's a six, seven hour course. So you're going to, I've definitely had more coaches and trainers take that course so far than kind of your average person. And I want to basically make that information, uh, more accessible and easier for people to, to work through. And so I'm going to take that course and turn that into a book just called recover to win. It's going to be the, the, the guide to the other 23 hours a day, um, outside of the gym and help people put all those pieces together. Because I think, again, that's a really important message that people need to understand if your goal is to, I don't care if you want to train a fight or, you know, get ready for a fight, or you want to just lose some pounds or you want to, whatever the case may be, uh, you know, recovery and the other 23 hours outside the gym are going to drive a lot of results. So, you know, over the next six, nine months, I'm going to take that course and turn it into a book with the idea being that, you know, if you're a coach or trainer, read it yourself, apply the principles, and then tell your clients about it. I really want to have a book out there that people will say, Hey, read this, this will really help you. And then at the same point in time, we're working on new Morpheus coaching platform that'll take all the wearable data out there and share it with the coaches and the trainers. So that for the first time, a coach can actually see how much you've been sleeping. They can see what your HRV is. They have an idea of what your recovery is and they can see your training that's being done outside the gym with them. If you're going somewhere else. So I'm really, uh, you know, focused on those two things of, of delivering the, the information about why, you know, all this, why your lifestyle matters and, and why the workout's just one piece of that. And then how, how do we actually track and measure your, your lifestyle in a meaningful way? And how do we train the coaches to understand what we're looking at and, and how to deliver more personalized programming, better guidance and habit-based, uh, you know, building all that sort of stuff to, again, kind of rethink. I think our, our industry's biggest limitation right now is most coaches and trainers are, are experts at training and the other 23 hours a day are mystery, right? I mean, you somebody leaves the gym, you got, you have no clue what they did. And you got to realize if someone's spending three or four hours a week with you, well, that leaves a whole lot of hours a week for them to screw things up or to do things that are probably not in their best interest. And if you have no way of seeing that, it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so, you know, I think there's, there's a lack of, of that information flowing from the person to the coach or trainer, but the reality is that shouldn't be the case because we have the technology to solve that. We have Fitbit, we have Apple Watch, we have Garmin, we have Ura, we have Polar. We've got a million pieces of devices out there that are collecting this data to tell that story, but the coach isn't able to see it right now. They have no access to that data. It's this big missing black box. And so we're trying to solve that with, with our Morpheus coaching uh, system. And then with the, the information around recovery to win to help people do that. I think that's the future. So it, I would say yep. this stuff, the, the use of this wearable tech tracking stuff is still in its infancy, but I agree. I reach a point where it's normalized, where, you know, all these devices we have, the, the iPhone, whatever is collecting all this stuff. And I think the future is, especially for progressive coaches to have access to all the information, like you're saying, which is going to increase yep. your ability to coach a person and get great results. If all this information is integrated, I think we're going to get as artificial intelligence increases, we have more ability to analyze, certainly collect this data. And I can see okay. you're certainly on the forefront of this stuff. I see companies like uh, Renaissance Periodization and their apps and a lot of, like I, they're not necessarily big on like data collection, but I know they're in that place where they could step into that gathering more and more information from their users to do a better job of coaching. So I so we already have it. I mean, it's, it's, it's now, I mean, the future is now we, we have it working right now. We have 40 coaches beta testing it. We're going to be rolling it out here in the next few months. It's already there. We have, we have the tools now to collect it. We have the system that can pull all the data and analyze it and give you the most important stuff. And we'll just continue to build uh, insights into that and show you the trends and the information that is the most important for you to know. I think the biggest thing is, coaches and trainers aren't data scientists and they shouldn't have to be. We should have the technology that can look through that data and say, look, here's what you need to know. Here's the person's trend over the last 30 days. And here's what you should do to help correct that trend because they're going the wrong direction. So that's essentially what Morpheus is doing. I mean, I agree with you. It's the future. It's where things are going to continue to evolve to. Um, but we're, we're there right now. I mean, I, I showed Morpheus uh, coaching app to a, a guy a couple months ago who's been in the industry for like 25, 30 years. And he said it was funny because he was just having a conversation with his friend the other day about what the future of coaching and industry would look like. And he was describing this. He's like, you literally just built what I was talking about. And so, <laughs> you know, I think we're, we're there, you know, we just have to continue to, to get this thing finalized out in the market and then drive the education. Cause it'll, it, it, it is going to happen. I mean, that it is, it is just a piece of the puzzle that needed to be there. And it just hasn't been until now, but the good thing is uh, you know, we're, we're at the point where we do have the technology to do it. We just need to get it out in the market. Uh, I hope again, everybody who's listening is kind of going, okay, I need to keep my thumb on the pulse of this and, and see what's going to materialize the next little bit. I know for sure I'm going to be diving more into this. So I guess uh, with the time we have left, I guess I have two more quick things. One, it is my hope that I'll be able to get down and Luca pulls off his event this year. Uh, you he's guys, going to, if not. Yeah, he's going yeah. to. 
it's it's supposed to be what the what one of the later weekends in September, somewhere in the twenty third right. or something like somewhere that. In there. Yeah. Yep. So I, I'm going to presume you'll be presenting at it. You've got to be there. I, would, I, I assume I will be. Yes. I don't know if he's finalized the lineup yet, so I'll check in. But it's, it's something. I, like, I think he just kind of takes it for granted. That I'm talking, so you could you could count me in. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, I know. There's always certain people. It's like um, I, I presume you know my friend James Krieger. I know Luca knows James quite well too. And yep. uh, so James is in the Seattle area as well. And then my friend Tim Arndt hosts an event in Spokane every year that mm. isn't fucked up by the uh, the world's bullshit. And uh, you can assume that James Krieger and Brad Dieter are always presenters at that event, right? They're just inextricably yep. tied to it. So the other thing I was going to sort of facetiously ask about was, you know, the, this whole Logan Paul and uh, oh god, the spectacle. So do you do you foresee all of a sudden a surge of YouTubers, and again, this is half joking, but YouTubers seeking you out to start preparing for these fights because let's face it, boxing's a tricky thing. And MMA has been exploding for years, but boxing is probably past its heyday. And so now it's sort of turned into this circus spectacle of one way to look at it. But there are massive paydays, and the same thing with Mayweather fighting uh, Conor McGregor. So, what do you think? I, I, yeah, I mean, I understand. That people want these spectacles. I mean, when when Pride was around, I, and I love Pride. You know, I saw Aki Bono fight Hoist Gracie for God's sakes. You know, I saw you know a 700 pound sumo wrestler fighting Hoist Gracie at 165 pounds, wherever he was, because Japan likes spectacles too. But they were they were at least trained, you know, combat athletes. I, I think the YouTube, you know, look at me like I'm gonna go fight somebody who would knock me out in half a second if they were actually trying is more of like so it's just a circus sideshow. I think it's, it's a little bit unfortunate to me that. Yeah, uh, you know, I think a lot of guys that I've watched in their careers make very little money despite being some of the best combat athletes. It's 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 gotta be frustrating for them to see some kid off YouTube go into the uh, go into a ring and make 20, 30 million dollars for for doing nothing but kind of having a glorified sparring session against Floyd, who probably could have knocked him out in a few rounds if he had really trained for it and wanted to. But that's just kind of the the YouTube, you know, look at me social media generation that we live in. But I'll tell you one thing, a, a good friend of mine down in LA was asked to train uh, one of the Pauls for a boxing match and uh, put together a program and a price and a budget and all sorts of stuff. And the guy, you know, I can't remember which Paul it was, looked at him like he was crazy and basically was like, you should be training. You should be thanking me for allowing you to train me. And you should be paying me as a sponsor to train, you know, to get trained by you. Like, it's just kind of a, my friend basically told him to screw off. Uh, but you know, it's, it's kind of that, that mentality pisses me off personally. Like, I don't care how many followers you have. If you expect me to put in my hard work and my coaching, my user experience to help you prepare for something, I'm, I'm not, this isn't a charity. I'm not going to do it for the views. Like, come on. I mean, I would told the guys screw off long before I got to that point. Um, but you know, hopefully you don't see more of that coming out. You, you hit on something that I love talking about and it's in the, you know, the industry space, people coming and every once in a while I get someone in my DMS who, you know, sends me something and they're acting like they're doing me a favor and giving me something where really they're asking me to dive into their media it takes my time. And they're not doing, they're not doing me a favor. They're asking for a favor and they haven't earned the ability to do that. And obviously I've stolen an hour of your time to have you come on here, but this is predicated on the fact that I bought your book. I've been waving this thing around on my social media now for probably three, four weeks. I love it. I'm really hoping I've driven a bunch of people to buy it. I know a bunch of people have no, said appreciate it. That. And no, it's it's well-deserved. I mean, I'm long overdue having asked you to bring you on here so that way a whole bunch of people can find out about what you're doing. I emphatically endorse, you know, I, I know your professional reputation. You have coached people at the absolute top tier in your industry. And I'm really hoping a lot of people will actually dive into the stuff you're getting. I hope someone is curious enough that eventually they find their way through your media to sign up for your certification. I'm definitely going to give future consideration to it. I've really been thinking about it because it's something I want to learn. I've got so much stacked up for the next little while. I can't fit it, but I am going to make a priority of it. I want a copy of the next book when it comes out. And I'm going to wave that okay. thing all over my social media. And I'm really hoping that this drives some people to you. So if I'm going to ask someone to come and spend a little bit of time talking with me, I, I really want to make it worth their while. So I want to make sure that it's giving them something really valuable. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And like I said, I think it's, again, not to sound like an old, I don't know, you know curmudgeon or whatever, but I think the, the younger generation coming up needs to be, uh, you know, aware of the people that are going to come up and try to get a bunch of free stuff out of them or say, hey, I've got 500 followers on my YouTube. So please write me a program for free. Give me this. Give me that. Give me 
look, all that shit to me is, is very meaningless in the grand scheme of things. You know, I want to work with people that are committed to achieving their goal and are serious enough to put the work in. Cause if I'm going to put my work into you, then you need to put your work into yourself. And if you're not willing to do that, or you're just trying to get me to train you so you can post more likes and selfies and bullshit train, find someone else. Cause that's, that's not me. So, you know, I think if you're a young trainer in the industry and you're coming up, choose your clients wisely, you know, don't, don't be in such a hurry to give your services away to people uh, for a social media follow or shout out or post or, you know, tag or whatever value your time, value your service, value your knowledge and, you know, work with the people that are actually going to make themselves better. And if you do that, you know, you're ultimately going to become a lot more successful in the long run. If you're just chasing the next, next first, you think some a YouTube star that you're going to follow along with. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. I, I don't, I don't, I don't like that, uh, you know, that people are kind of exploiting, I think other people with their, their social media power, whether it's the cancel culture or get them free. Like it's just bullshit to me. Uh, poignant thoughts. I'm really glad you dove into that. So I'm out of time. And I don't want to steal any more of yours, but let's make sure people know where to find your media and your resources. Sure. Eightweeksout.com is the number one place to uh, just find everything. Like I said, I've got the new course, Recover to Win, the certification course you mentioned, and of course, the book, Ultimate MMA Conditioning. So those are all in eight weeks out. Um, and you can also find Morpheus, which is the HRV system I mentioned through there as well. You can go to the Instagram, that's fight the fact I just downplayed social media. You can find me on Instagram slash coach Joel Jamison. I do post on there occasionally, but it is not uh, not a bunch of selfies. It's it's a mostly just uh, some training pr principles and that kind of stuff. So aweekstyle.com is, is definitely the place to go for majority of it. Sounds good. If they're looking for your media, your surname is spelled J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N. So It is not quite like the whiskey. You've got to add an E in there. There's, there's a bottle up here for anybody watching. Yep. I set up in front of my bar. Uh, I mean, I wish I was spelled like that. I'd probably be, I'd probably be uh, in a whole different category if I was one of the original Jamesons, but uh, it's, it's an E, so they screwed me. Well, it's been a real blast to talk to you. Grateful that you took the time. And um, thank you so much, everybody listening. Thank you. Go follow Joel. Go check out his website, especially if you're interested in some of the stuff we talked about. If you are not yet following me, Andrew Coates Fitness, on Instagram, that is the hub for all of my stuff. I'm also going to be redeveloping my website in the near future. So I've been kind of quiet about the website, but once I get it all done up, then uh, I'm going to be using it a ton more, plus more YouTube stuff. And if you're a listener, I'm actually starting to release these like I always plan to on YouTube. So if you like the visual stuff, you can actually see Joel's face. Joel, thank you so much. Stay tuned for a split second after I finish recording and uh, everyone else stay tuned next week.